Highway to Safety, Episode 4. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Highway to Safety Podcast. My name is David Wallace, the Traffic Safety Guy, and this is the podcast about traffic safety, providing you knowledge, raising your awareness, and giving you the tools to be a safer driver. On this show, I discuss traffic safety issues, give you tips and suggestions on what we can all do to be safer on the road, and bring you conversations with policymakers, traffic safety professionals, and the people who are making a difference every day of their lives to make our roads and highways safer for all of us. What do you say? Are you ready for our journey together on this highway to safety? Let's get started, shall we? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Highway to Safety. I'm glad you stopped by. And in this particular episode, we're going to be talking about drugged driving. So being impaired from drugs other than alcohol. And in fact, let's face it, we have heard about drunk driving or alcohol-impaired driving for years, and we know the bottom line rule for that is don't drink and drive, right? Matt has done a phenomenal job of raising our awareness and providing the knowledge so that we know just how dangerous this crime is. So we understand the terrible devastation it has caused. And we've been able to strengthen the laws and make sure that things have changed over time. And there's a lot more to go yet on this area. There's no question about it. And if you want to hear about that in highwaytosafety.com slash zero one, that's where you can hear about my interview with Dr. Rosekind and NTSB's recommendations on how to end impaired driving. So we've done a lot of good in changing how things happen for drunk driving or alcohol impaired driving. But we haven't talked much about drugged driving, impaired driving from other drugs besides alcohol. But we're starting to hear more about it now. It's starting to become higher, a higher profile topic. And now when I talk about drug driving too, let's keep in mind that this is not just talking about illegal drugs. Prescription medication can cause drug driving. Some over-the-counter medication can cause drug driving. We really need to start being alert to this whole discussion and just how much of an impact it can have on all of us. Now, I really think it was this whole topic really started becoming to the forefront back in late 2009 when the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, came out with a study, and it was called the 2007 National Roadside Survey of Alcohol and Drug Use by Drivers. And what that report represented is the first real national estimate for drug-involved driving derived from a survey that they did from drivers out there on the road. What happened was it came up with some startling statistics, things that got people's attention real quick to really elevate our understanding that this is a huge problem. For example, one statistic is of the people tested for drugs, 16% tested positive, 11% positive for illegal drugs, and almost 4% for medications, and about 1% for both illegal drugs and medications. That tells us that one in six individuals were on the road driving with some type of drug in their system. And as I said, 11%, so one in 10, was with illegal drugs. Now keep in mind, too, that this study did not determine if the persons, the individuals were impaired or not. That's not the question they were looking at. They were just trying to decide, do they have drugs in their system right now? Because that by itself can be concerning. But that's not the only statistics that has really been raising the awareness or understanding that this is a huge problem. Another study that came out and said that the involvement of drugs in fatal crashes now 
has increased by five percentage points over the past five years, even though the overall number of drivers killed has been decreasing in the United States. So while we're having fewer fatalities by number-wise, the percentage of people involved that have drugs in their system is going up. We know now that approximately, this is a conservative estimate, 20% of all fatal crashes right now involve someone that has drugs in their system. And we know that now that if someone's under the influence of drugs, it's three times more likely that they'll be in a crash than someone that is not. So these are all a number of startling statistics that just says how huge of a problem this is right now. And that's why we have to start looking at this issue and really addressing it. And that's why we're going to do a little bit here in a few minutes with Dr. DuPont. He is currently the president of the Institute for Behavior and Health. But before that, he was also the former director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse and a former White House drug chief. So he brings to the table a wealth of understanding and knowledge on this whole topic. Now, this is not to say that this whole drug problem has been going on just for the past few years. No, it's been going on for decades as well. Back in the 1970s, Los Angeles officers were seeing people arrested for impaired driving, drunk driving. But when they took a test for alcohol, it came up with very low results or no, no alcohol at all. Clearly, something else was causing the impairment. So at that time, in fact, the Los Angeles Police Department developed a program to try to identify what kind of drugs were causing the issue. The way it was generally done is to do an examination of the person, put them through a battery of tests that are medically appropriate, determine what's causing the problem, and then come to the conclusion based on their observations. In the 1980s, NHTSA recognized that it's an important component for enforcing the laws for drug driving. And so the program became expanded and grew by leaps and bounds beyond Los Angeles. The program itself is called DEC, or the Drug Evaluation and Classification Program, and officers that are certified in it are DREs, or drug recognition experts. And what they are really is law enforcement officers that have received specialized training and then been certified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And again, what they do is they, someone that gets arrested for impaired driving, they do an evaluation. First off, of course, is the person impaired? And then secondly, what's causing the impairment? And they look at a variety of categories of drugs to determine this based on, as I say, this battery of tests. And currently now there's over 6,000 DREs around the world. So this program has had an impact and it is making a difference. It's stopping people from drug driving. But what we're seeing is it's not enough. We have to have the enforcement component, absolutely, but more is needed. It is really critical that the public understands and really is aware of this problem, aware of that it's happening, and is given the knowledge and the tools that they can take steps to change things around. And really, that's the first step to making a change is the knowledge, the understanding, the awareness, and then implementing that knowledge, that awareness, so that you do change your behavior, you change our patterns, you change our ways. So in a minute here, we're going to hear Dr. DuPont and discuss with him what's going on with this whole problem. Why is it a problem? What's been happening? What can we do about it? And he will have some very concrete ideas on what it takes to stop drug driving. And in fact, part of the discussion will focus on prescription medication and what can be done about that and what we need to know as we go forward for ourselves and how we deal with that area. Just one thing to let you know, there is a couple moments here, a couple spots, where you'll hear static for a very brief interval because of the microphone that was being used, it caused some static, but again, it's very brief. And if you want, you can actually watch video clips because I did video record my conversation with Dr. DuPont. So you can watch them on my website at highwaytosafety.com. And the actual episode, the actual podcast episode 
is going to be at highwaytosafety.com slash zero four. And it's there you'll find the show notes and the links to the variety of websites and documents that are discussed. And after we finish up with Dr. DuPont and his conversation, I'll also provide a few more tips for us to think about and what we can do to really bring about a change in our community. Let's go ahead and transition over to my conversation with Dr. Robert DuPont. I am very excited right now to be sitting down here with Dr. Bob DuPont. And Dr. DuPont has been a leader in drug abuse prevention and treatment for over 40 years. Among his many contributions to the field is his leadership as the first director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse from 1973 to 1978, and as the second White House drug chief from 1973 to 1977. And following his commitment, his distinguished public career, and he's done even much more than that, in 1978, Dr. DuPont became the founding president of the Institute for Behavior and, and Health Incorporated. Dr. DuPont, yeah, I'm having problems here. Let me... You're doing fine. Yeah. Keep going. Dr. DuPont has written for publication more than 300 professional articles and 15 books and monographs on a variety of health-related subjects. Dr. DuPont, thank you so much for joining me on this. I'm so proud to be here with you. And what I would like thought we'd do is talk a little bit about drug driving, uh-huh. uh, what it means, what it is, why it's an issue, I guess. Yeah. And then also focus, focus a little bit on prescription medication sure. and how that can be also the similar problems. Absolutely. So when I t- mention the words drug driving, what does that mean to you? Uh, it means driving that is impaired as a result of the use of a drug. Uh, drugs, uh, many drugs, uh, affect the brain and the brain function and have to do with alertness and uh, ability to do things like drive a car. And uh, this is a major traffic safety problem in the country, and it's been uh, ignored uh, for a long time. And uh, the country, with the help of a lot of people like you and me and a lot of other good people, are uh, trying to understand the problem better and to try to do things uh, to uh, reduce the traffic safety problem. And I might say also, at least in my case, to use the law enforcement as a way of providing a pathway to recovery for people with substance abuse problems. Uh, That's the case now with alcohol impaired driving. So that's another positive outcome of uh, of dealing with this problem. Well, and it seems like we're hearing a lot more lately about drug driving. Uh, We've obviously been dealing with alcohol and impaired driving through alcohol for Decades. Decades. A century. It's literally a century. (laughs) And we still have that problem. Oh, my gosh. And we're at the beginning stages now on alcohol. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But we seem to be hearing a lot more lately about drug driving. And obviously, alcohol is a drug. And you and I understand that. But putting alcohol aside for the moment, why are we hearing more about it now? Well, we've had a drug epidemic uh, in the world. Uh, People don't understand that because many of the drugs like alcohol and marijuana and heroin have been around for a long time. But really, uh, something new in the world happened in the late 1960s and early 70s, where for the first time, whole populations were exposed to lots and lots of drugs that are impairing and addicting by very powerful routes of administration, especially smoking, uh, snorting, and injecting, and created uh, a massive modern drug epidemic. 
This has effects on education, it has effects on uh, the workplace, and of course it has effects in the highway, uh, highway safety. Uh, and so we're, we're talking about a particular effect uh, of, this, uh, of this modern epidemic. And, and, and more recently, of course, the explosion of prescription opiate use yeah. has created a, an epidemic within the epidemic that has uh, received a lot of attention lately, including uh, on the highway. Well, and I also understand, too, and we've been getting a lot more research now, uh, seems like from NHTSA, from ONDCP, or at least publication of that research, um, that is also showing just how significant of a problem this really is. Well, how large it is. Now, that's one of the things that is, that is very, very striking, uh, how many people are in, in involved with drugs and what a big segment of the problem of highway safety uh, uh, drug driving uh, really is. So I, I think there's a kind of a drumbeat of, uh, of uh, publications and media attention and, of course, personal stories. Yeah. Uh, the number of people whose lives are uh, affected adversely as a result of this and deaths is, uh, is uh, stunning. And all of that becomes part of a, of a raised national consciousness. Uh, and in that context, it's very interesting to me how competitive it is to get into the public space to get attention uh, paid to a problem. Uh, and you see that uh, here uh, with, the, uh, with the drug issue in, in highway safety as it uh, competes for attention with uh, lots of other factors having to do with uh, serious problems also. Well, and you mentioned fatalities, and I think NHTSA came out with a report that said of those fatalities that are actually tested, one in three had drugs in their system. Exactly. So again, that it up, back up to dramatically point. in recent years, yeah, uh, and a very uh, great concern that uh, the the study that I find particularly helpful is from uh, the Maryland Shock Trauma Unit, mm -hmm. where for a six month period, every driver who was evacuated for very very serious injuries uh, to the Shock Trauma Unit was tested for drugs and alcohol, and fifty one percent of the drivers had drugs in them compared to 32% who had alcohol, and uh, half of the alcohol also had, al had drugs in with it. So that uh, really uh, put a, an exclamation point. 25% of them had marijuana. It put a very uh, strong exclamation point about the uh, enormity uh, of the problem of drug driving. Well, and in fact, you mentioned as far as alcohol again, are we really, when we talk about this situation, are we trying to exclude alcohol from drugs here and if I just fight one or I fight for one or the other? The danger is to get into that uh, a zero-sum game. If you're thinking about drugs, you're not thinking about alcohol. And if you're thinking about alcohol, you're not thinking about drugs. But it's very interesting to me that it's pretty hard to find people who are just drugs or just alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a tremendous mix going on and uh, very closely related to each other. In, in every conceivable way uh, now. So uh, it's clearly, and let's take another drug that has a lot of attention, and that's tobacco. We think about tobacco addiction. Well, that isn't a problem on highway safety because alcohol does kill you, but it doesn't impair you from driving. Uh, well, the, the alcohol impairs you, but not the, the cigarettes. Alcohol, I mean, the cigarettes. <laughs> the alcohol impairs you from driving, but cigarettes don't. Right. And that, that is so striking. It isn't just the... Uh, the addiction or the use of the substance is substances that impair your ability to drive. And uh, alcohol is definitely an impairing drug. And of course, these other drugs we're talking about are major problems of marijuana, 
but also many prescription drugs are a problem. Well, let's talk about the prescription drugs here for a minute. Yeah. What, when we say it's a problem, I mean, there's obviously two different points here. One, we'll, get, we'll cover them both, but one is the abuse of drug or prescription medication. But then I have a doctor go to see a doctor. The doctor says, here, take this medicine. It will help you. Well, then I should be okay to drive with that medicine, right? Well, usually you are with that. It's very interesting. Much of the problem with prescription drugs and driving uh, has to do with people who are taking the drugs with or without a prescription in ways not prescribed okay. uh, in terms of their doses, for example, and using it with other things like alcohol. The doctors are generally going to tell you when they hand you that, don't drink when you're using this drug. It has impairing potential. That's And what you'll find in the uh, patient inserts about the drugs, they have warnings about driving. And they have warnings about uh, drinking, too. In terms of, of prescription drugs, there's a real big potential problem uh, with the public attention on it. And that is it can discourage people from getting appropriate medical treatment. And so we're walking a kind of a fine line here. When I think about the prescription drug problem in terms of the highway, the first thing is the use of prescription drugs by people who don't have a prescription, yeah. which is very common. That is clearly illegal. And that needs to be addressed very much as a, a problem, the same way you do for other uh, illegal drug use. And then setting that aside, now we've got people who do have a prescription. Are they using it the way it was intended by the doctor and not using something else along with it? Now, let's set that aside because that's clearly uh, something that needs to be prosecuted. Now we got people who are just taking it, that prescribed for them, and they're taking it the way the doctor said, and they're not taking anything else with it. In that case, what, what, what uh, is very clear is that once the person has been taking the drug for a while, it, it's very unusual to have an impairing effect from the same dose because the effect of those drugs in terms of uh, impairing driving is very limited, if any at all, once they're stable. But when they're starting out, when they haven't used it and don't have tolerance, or when they raise the dose, and then when it's added with other problems, like let's say being sleepy, for example, any event for sleep deprivation, now you've got a much more complex, let's think of it as a kind of nuanced kind of a problem. And what I am troubled by is when we talk about prescription drugs and driving, we get right head on into the conflicts with general medical practice. And that is a, a problem we're not going to easily get ourselves out of. So I want to really focus <laughs> on the, the low-hanging fruit, the easier problems to think about. That is, person who has no prescription. The use of it. And the person who's using it with other things or in ways not prescribed by the doctor. Let's focus on those. Those are the ones that really are uh, clearest and where you don't have a downside of actually discouraging appropriate medical treatment. Well, then, as far as for the, uh, the people that are using it illegally. Yeah. Um, I think ONDCP has said that that's... Also, the word they use, epidemic. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah. And uh, CDC has also, I think, come out with that. How are they getting these dr prescription drugs? Well, as, as, as one of the things is as doctors around pill mills and doctors who are really in this just uh, for money, that, again, is kind of the low-hanging fruit in the prescription drug problem. It's been the easier one to go after, although it's not easy. But among other problems, it is. But there's a, there's a, a, a bigger problem that is, uh, I'm a physician, and so... Uh, I, and I practice, so I see my own patients. And uh, there's a problem because people who are drug abusers lie about yeah. their drug use uh, and their symptoms. And they can look uh, pretty convincing to a doctor. 
and it's not easy to uh, figure that out. I think most doctors uh, are uh, oblivious to the fact that when they write those controlled substances prescriptions, they don't really know the things they think they know about who those patients are. Uh, and I think one of the things that is, that is going to change and is beginning to change, interestingly enough, starting with the pain medicine practice, is to do a lot more drug testing in patients who are treated with prescription opiates. Before prescription. they make the... Before, before and they during the time, both, during, okay. both more, before and during. Okay. Because many of those people are going to be using other drugs in addition to their prescribed drugs, like marijuana. Uh, like cocaine uh, and, and many other drugs, along with their medicines. And that's going to be and another one that's very interesting that the pain doctors are finding is a lot of their patients, when they do the drug test, do not have the drug they prescribe in their systems. Hmm. And that is because they're selling the drugs. They're not using them at all themselves. Well, that is also revealed by a drug test. So what we're seeing is, a, and, and I think that many people who are using these medicines appropriately and safely can be offended when their doctor does a drug test on them and say, well, you don't trust me is what you're saying. But it really isn't that. It's trust and verify that we really need to do. And somebody, including myself, if I go to a doctor and get a, a controlled substance prescription, uh, is be prepared to say, yes, I'll do that. Just the way I go through, they get on an airplane and I go through the security. You say, well, you think I'm a liar? I told you I wasn't a terrorist, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, the trouble is uh, I can trust you, but I don't. I trust the next guy too, and he is a terrorist, and so I gotta treat you all that way. Yeah. And that's the same thing I think uh, we're gonna see a lot more of with prescription drugs. Uh, and you know, you think about it, well, that's punitive of the person who is a drug addict. No, not really. To let the drug addict continue uh, down that path yeah is not in that person's interest, not in that person's family's interest, not in the public interest, to intervene, to stop that and help that person overcome what is a very serious illness is uh, in that person's interest as well as in the public health interest. And in many ways, that may be the only way you find out if they have a problem is through that test you're saying. Absolutely, it, it, it's to recognize the uh, commonness of the problem of substance abuse disorders and to have a, a shared sense of what has to happen. You know, we, we're, we're very much into thinking about voluntary, that we want to have people make their own choices, uh, decide what they're going to do with their bodies, uh, these kind of things. And, and that makes a lot of sense. But when a person is addicted to alcohol or drugs, they're not making sound decisions. And unless somebody outside uh, intervenes in that, whether it's a family or a doctor or a judge, the person is really helpless. They're caught in the grip of uh, what I think of as an abusive chemical love affair. Unless somebody intervenes to separate them from that, uh, they're going to carry that on, often to their death or somebody else's yeah. death or both. Yeah. That's a public education that we need to get, that you have a responsibility. We have a responsibility for each other when it comes to this, both in terms of prevention and in terms of intervention and treatment. And one of the other things, you mentioned the doctors. From what I was seeing with ONDCP and other uh, studies and that, a lot of these people that are abusing these drugs, prescription drugs, are getting them from friends and family. Absolutely. Now, that, that's very interesting. And the data looks that way, and it's the majority. But what you don't see when you see those statistics is that most of the people who are saying, I have used a prescription drug non-medically in the last year, have used it less than 10 times in the year. Okay. They're very infrequent, most of them. 
that ones who are using it a lot, who are the most likely to be impaired and most likely to be addicted, are not getting it from friends and family because there's not enough of it there. If you go to grandma's uh, medicine cabinet, yes, you can get 100 capsules, but 100 capsules is not going to last you very long, and grandma's not going to get it again for 10 years uh, in there. So they're going to have to do something else. So yes, that's important. I think it really is. But the people who really are, are uh, hooked and, and really heavy users have got to have other ways. And the main way they're doing it, they can buy it from a drug dealer is, is a way it happens. But the way it comes is through somebody who's diverting it from legitimate medical use. Now, it could be a pill mill doctor uh, or a doctor who's really not uh, operating in ethical ways, but it also is likely to be a doctor who uh, is uh, with uh, uh, the best will in the world is writing prescriptions for somebody uh, who is uh, selling it. I'll give you some numbers that I find just stunning. The, the prescription for an opiate painkiller, a single daily dose prescribed to an ordinary patient can be sold on the street for $100. A single daily dose sold to a pain patient can kill a non-patient, a person who's not used to taking it. And one of the, you mentioned a couple of times, and just to let everybody know what we're talking about, when you use the phrase a, a pill uh, doctor, pill mill doctor, what is that? Uh, well, it's a physician who set up a practice that uh, the majority, in some cases, the only patient that's seen is somebody who's getting an, an opiate uh, pain medicine like Oxycontin, Vicodin, uh, Dilaudid, uh, these uh, uh, opiate uh, drugs in high doses, and the patients flock in, they pay cash, they don't fool around with health insurance mm -hmm. or anything like that, uh, and then they walk out the door and sell them. They're not there for treatment. Well, they'll come and say that. Oh. Uh, they'll fill out the forms for the doctor. There, there's a kind of cover for both the patient and the doctor that this is medical treatment. It, it looks like medical treatment, except real doctors who are uh, treating real patients don't have practices where 99% of the people are walking out the door with massive doses of opiates. Yeah. It's an epidemic as far as you know, prescription medication and drug driving in some respects. How do we change it? What do we do? Well, let me, let me say a word this moment of a couple of heroes in this field. Uh, the current uh, drug czar, Gil Kierlikowski, has really distinguished himself by identifying the problem of drug-impaired driving as a priority and making it a national priority and sticking with it uh, over the course of his five years uh, in the White House. And, and uh, one of his legacies is uh, a real focus on this, and, and that's uh, to his credit, and, and I want to salute him for that. Absolutely. Another person that I think is just phenomenal in what he's done is Jeff Michael, uh, who works at the Department of Transportation, who's one of the finest people I've ever worked with, and who is really committed to this drug driving issue, not at the cost of uh, alcohol impaired driving or anything else, because he's interested in all driver, highway safety, but he has been open to, to dealing with this in a very uh, useful way. So those are a couple of my heroes in this, but, but I think the main thing to do, and, it, and it's pretty simple, and that is to drug test everybody who's arrested for impairment along with alcohol tests. Uh, we have 1.2 million Americans arrested for DUI a year. 1.2 million should be tested for drugs as well as alcohol. And everybody who's under supervision in the community for alcohol or DUI 
should be drug tested along with alcohol testing. When you say supervision, that's through the court system? Through the court system, yeah. Once they're uh, uh, found guilty uh, and are under a sentence. And th th this is a lot of people, 1.2 million a year. Uh, and just doing the drug testing and making sure that they're not, not only are they not using alcohol, and by the way, if you to turn it around, if you had somebody who was arrested for drug driving, I would want him tested for alcohol too, uh, because they so often go together. Now, that is a, it, the sort of new idea. Instead of having a whole new silo for drug driving, separate from the silo for alcohol, say, no, no, we're looking at substance-impaired driving, Mm -hmm. And we want to have in that one silo alcohol and drugs, including prescription drugs, to put it all in there together because pharmacologically in terms of the brain, it all is the same problem. And many of them are the same people. But just doing that is going to change things dramatically. Now, the law has to change also. Also, uh, the, the law right now is in most states makes it very difficult to prosecute for drug driving. It, what, what's needed is to, is to have what's called the per se standard, uh, which is what we do for alcohol. People don't understand that. What we do with alcohol is we say above 0.08 is the per se evidence of impairment. And that's really important to have that because otherwise you get into this endless regression, uh, conflict about how impaired was it and what does that mean and where's there some other explanation for it and on and on and on. You've got to have a bright line, uh, to, to make the, make the thing work. And, I think the simple answer is you cannot get behind the wheel of a car with any illegal drug in your system. And now when you say illegal, let's make sure that includes prescriptions being used illegally. Not only that, but it also includes alcohol use under the age of 21. And sure. So, so, so it, there's a bright line here of the law. If it's un, it's, a, it's not legal, it's illegal, that's easy, that's a zero tolerance. That's very simple line. Now, if it is legal that you're using, it doesn't mean you're not impaired and you can't be prosecuted. Yes, let's say you have a prescription for the drug. You can still be prosecuted for, for uh, impairment, but you have to demonstrate the impairment. You don't use the per se law yeah, anymore. Let's be clear on that then, too. The prosecutor has to demonstrate the impairment. Yes. That based on the officer's observations and everything, they still have the presumption of innocence, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but in this case... It would be a typical impaired driving prosecution. Exactly. It, it doesn't, you don't lose anything. Really. What you do, though, is add the per se standard for the illegal use. Yeah. And that changes the game entirely uh, to have that. And, and, and we need that uh, in all the states. I think the number now is something like 16 we have. None of the 16 per se laws are as good as they could be. And we need to improve those and we need to extend them as a matter of principle. And the precedent is so clear to do that, and that is what we've done since 1986 with commercial drivers. The commercial drivers, truck drivers, bus drivers, cab drivers, are all subject to drug testing on a random basis, and they all have zero tolerance. Any evidence of the use of any illegal drug, and they're off the road. And that's the same thing with pilots, uh, people running trains. That is the standard that we need to have for everybody driving a car. You think about it, if we're talking about safety-sensitive things, what do any of us do where we have as much safety implications as mm. driving a car? I don't think there's anything. And the idea of keeping our highways free from alcohol and drug uh, problems is as absolutely essential. And that requires the implementation broadly 
of a standard that says, no, you will not do this and be on the highway. So for the John Q. citizen, what do they do? About what? Oh, just do this. Oh, uh, talk to their uh, political leaders yeah. uh, about about this and ask about what's going on with drug driving. Uh, there are wonderful websites, including our own Stop Drug Driving, but there are other sources of information. Uh, get that information. Talk to your uh, news, local newspapers and other uh, media outlets. Uh, be concerned about it uh, and then raise that priority. And obviously, I would assume, too, know what they're using and, and its limitations and impact on them. Well, I think one of the things to do is don't drive after you've used a drug. Uh, that, that's for certain. And, and I would say don't use illegal drugs. You know, one of the things about really enforcing better drug driving laws is it's going to have a dampening effect on drug use. Uh, that's not a bad thing either uh, in terms of the public health. So I, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of good things that can come from focusing on uh, the drug driving issue. One, one just mentioned one controversy, which is huge, is about marijuana. And uh, right now that's uh, embroiling Sure. Uh, the, the, the field uh, and the movement toward legalizing marijuana got us all topsy-turvy in the, in, the, in the drug driving field because marijuana dominates uh, the, uh, the drug use uh, as it's impacting on, on the highways. And, uh, you know, the, uh, to me, the standard for uh, marijuana has got to be the same standard for anything else. And that is, uh, if you have that marijuana, that's uh, a violation of the, uh, of the law to drive with it uh, and anything in your system. Now, people will say, well, it can be there for a long time, can be there for a long time, but only if you're a chronic user. If you just smoke a marijuana cigarette, 50% of the people test negative the next day. Right. Uh, and virtually all of them are negative within three days. So to get a chronic positive for a marijuana test, uh, you got to be a very chronic user of marijuana to be in that in that regard. Uh, and uh, so I think that uh, marijuana should be included uh, in the zero tolerance approach. And to take it out is going to take out an awful lot of the of the uh, power of the value of uh, drug driving uh, enforcement and education. And you just to wrap up, you mentioned you have a, there's a website that um, you have set up or do you, yeah. through what is what was that website again? Stop. Drugdriving.org. .org. Um, and so they can find a lot of information that you talk about here on that website. Absolutely. And, of course, as you mentioned, there will be other links as well. For well, uh, the, the White House Drug Office has got a lot of very good play things that, to do with that. And I think that's a, a great resource to uh, start with. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, NIDA, has a lot of information about this. And I'm very proud to say that our organization uh, did the study for the National Institute on Drug Abuse about uh, drug driving research. And you can find that uh, study on our website and their website. And what's your website? Uh, the www.ibhinc.org or stopdrugdriving.org. Well, Dr. DuPont, I, we could talk about this for a long time. I know for many more hours. Sure. Because there's so many nuances here. But I want to thank you for taking your time. It's been, I think, a phenomenal discussion. And I as we talk about this area and, and really try to raise awareness in the public of just how broad this problem is and it's time to start taking action. What you have done and are doing is a tremendous public service. It's a privilege for me to take the time and to contribute to this effort. And uh, I, I just uh, salute you for what you're doing and I'm very grateful for the 
public education that you're doing and bringing people who care and who have knowledge to uh, public attention is a is a great public service. Thank you. Well, thank you, sir. And again, thank you for your time. Yeah. Been an honor. Well, there it is. As you heard, there are some significant problems with drug driving, and there are some concrete steps that can be taken to make a difference. You heard Dr. DuPont talk about per se laws, laws that say that the presence of any amount of an illegal drug in the body, in the person, and then they're driving, should not be allowed. 17 states have such laws. That's a start. That's a beginning. It was interesting. After my conversation with Dr. DuPont, I happened to find an article, and I'll put this in the show notes as well, where, and you heard him talk about pill mill doctors. Well, CVS has revoked the dispensing privileges for several doctors who are prescribing too many painkillers. And how do we know this? Well, they looked at the area where these doctors were at and did a comparison of other doctors, a variety of doctors, and said, okay, based on the patient here, based on this information, and based on the age and the region, what's going on here? And in fact, one doctor that they revoked those that privileges with was prescribing more than 44,000 doses of high-risk drugs, these drugs that you've heard about through uh, Dr. DuPont. When compared to the rare area, 650 or so was the common number of prescriptions there. And that's the kind of thing that can make a difference with the pill mill doctors, if we can get them out of business. Now, legitimate doctors absolutely need to know what they're doing, absolutely need the pills and need the medication available to them to give to their patients. But it's these few doctors that are causing a problem for the rest. So as you're thinking about this area and working towards trying to see what you can do to change things around, to make it so it's better in your community, Keep in mind this whole idea of a per se law. Do you have one in your state? If not, is that something you might want to talk about with your state legislator? Do you know if the doctors in your community have learned how to recognize patients with substance abuse problems? And how do they talk to those patients about it? And as you heard again from Dr. DuPont, that's not easy. And ultimately, really, parents, is talking to your children about the consequences of alcohol and illicit drug use. Children. Are your parents on medication for pain? Is it affecting their ability to drive? Both ways we need to look at and see what can we do within our own family to make a difference there. The Office of the National Drug Control Policy, or ONDCP, actually developed a toolkit that helps provide tips for parents of teen drivers, sample community activities to raise public awareness, and it provides resources to help teens reject the negative influences for using drugs. That kind of effort starts in the home. Starts with the family. It's taking the time and talking to each other about this. And this is not a one-time conversation. This is a conversation that has to happen numerous times. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done within the home, within the community, within the state. It all starts with you, with your understanding, your knowledge of drug driving and the consequences it's having across our country. In the meantime, thank you for dropping in for this episode. You've been listening to the Highway to Safety podcast. Make sure to head over to my website at highwaytosafety.com and check out the show notes. And you'll find there as well any of the links to topics that were discussed on the show. To go specifically to this particular episode, it's highwaytosafety.com slash zero four. Feel free to leave any questions or comments there as well. And as I mentioned earlier, my conversation with Dr. DuPont was video recorded. So there are video clips that you can watch on that website as well. And if you want to read my blog on other traffic safety topics, you can find that at trafficsafetyguide.com, along with other video clips and links for traffic safety and a variety of information. 
I hope you found this episode useful and informative. As I've always said, this podcast is about providing knowledge, raising awareness, and giving you the tools to be a safer driver. I'm David Wallace, the Traffic Safety Guy, and I'm here to help you stay on the road and be a safer you. Have a great day.